and welcome to this week's edition of Money Matters TV. My name is Doug Hepburn and with Hepburn Financial Advisors, offering securities and investment advisory services through Satara Advisors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Satara is under separate ownership from any other entity, any other named entity. I'd like to introduce my guest host today, Ken Jordan from Round Point Mortgage. Ken, how are you? Very good, Doug. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Tell me something good in your world these days. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, what's good is there's still an awful lot of people that want to get mortgages. That's a good thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and can they still get them at decent rates? Well, they can, and and that is the, the good news. I mean, rates have increased over the last couple of months, and you know we're still kind of caught in the the the, uh, the unknown of where they're going to land ultimately. But from a historical standpoint, we can't be upset with where rates are uh, in the global scheme of things. I think that the real challenge though right now is not, you know, the, the rate, although rate does affect affordability, the real challenge is supply. There's still just an absolute limited number of, of uh, houses uh, available to buy, which is continuing to drive up those sale prices. So increasing sale prices from a buyer perspective is a much bigger problem than the increase in interest rates. It's funny that you mentioned that. I spoke to a friend yesterday who said that uh, their house was listing, listing today. And um, they already had 12 people uh, scheduled to go through and look at it. And probably gonna, of, it's probably yeah, going to be a lot of real estate partners that are saying the same thing. They just they list the house. It's selling for 25, 35, 45, 55,000 above above the asking price. And, and there's multiple offers, multiple bids. It's a, it's a real challenge for homeowners. It's a real challenge for buyers right. that don't have the ability to buy cash. Right, right. I can see that. And, you know, and unless you, and if you have to move and you have some place to go, that's, that's great. But you know, if you're selling at an inflated price and buying at an inflated price, you're almost, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. True. So, you know, it's sort of tough to get a good deal out there. The only people that benefit from an environment like this are people who are selling for the last time. You know, right. you, 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 for whatever reason you're going into a rental, you're doing this is the last time you're going to sell. If you're buying and selling right now, not the end of the world, because like you said, you're buying at a premium, but you're selling at a premium. Um, exactly. The folks that are entering the market right now are the ones who are really, you know, having the toughest time because they don't have a property, not taking advantage of, of, of the, the premium pricing on anything else. Um, and, and that continued, you know, supply crunch is, 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 is there's only a couple of things that are going to change that, Doug. One is the lack of buyers. I don't right. see that happening, right? Because you look at the supply and demand curve, the demand's not going to go away due to a lack of buyers. The only way that the only way we're going to affect this is if, the supply and demand curve is impacted on the supply side. Right. right? And I, I was I was talking to a guy the other day, you know, I was reading an article that said that one in seven homes, single family homes is owned by a uh, hedge fund. The, wow. the hedge funds have been buying up single family homes left and right, which of course is decreasing the amount of homes that can be bought by individuals um, and, and hurting the supply. But I guess my question, let me ask you a question, Doug, with that, what is the benefit to hedge funds buying single family properties? Well, traditionally, you know, most most investment companies, obviously, they they want to make money. Mm -hmm. So they're going to do it in, in one of two ways, either through uh, interest, dividends, rents or through capital gains. And, 
generally speaking, you know, when you uh, when you buy real estate, it's an illiquid asset. So you're not going to see a whole lot of fluctuation in, in values because, you know, it's not like stocks that get repriced every millisecond. Right. You know, they get repriced maybe, you know, every every month, every three months, every six months. So it has a tendency to be stable in portfolios, but it also generates revenue. At some point, the hedge funds are going to say, hey, look, you know, we need our money back because we want to redeploy it somewhere else. And the question becomes, when is that going to happen and how quickly are they going to let this inventory back onto the market? So it's safe to say that, I mean, one of my concerns, you know, as a professional in the industry is that, you know, let's say a big hedge fund decides, you know what, we're where we need to be. We're going to start putting some of this inventory back on the marketplace and other people kind of look around. Well, they're doing it. We're going to do it. You know, could we could we possibly see a massive influx of inventory quickly over a short period of time? That's a good question. You know, in, in my mind, I think you would think that uh, hedge fund investors, hedge fund managers would be a lot smarter than that, than uh, to to be affected by uh, negatively by crowd behavior and all jump on the bandwagon mm-hmm. and move it once. So I think you're, you're probably not going to see uh, a lot of distortion from the selling. It's just going to allow more uh, units to come onto the market and more people to buy. I'd be curious to know whether a lot of those homes that are owned by hedge funds are entry level homes you know, for, for first time home buyers. Because that's been, as you said, you know, people buying homes for the first time, they're the ones who are having to pony up a lot of the extra money because there's not a whole lot of inventory out there. And if you're young and coming out of an apartment, chances are you don't have a whole lot of down money to go out and do a cash offer. So it sort of of makes things difficult. But I can see how having institutional investors would uh, disrupt the market. And I, I think if, if you just kind of look at the, the numbers and say, OK, well, you know, if, if, if I'm a hedge fund, and I'm purchasing a property, I'm going to want to purchase a property in a price range where the fair market rent that I'm going to get for that property poses, you know, results in a profit. I think the higher you get on the purchase spectrum uh, price wise, the harder it is to get a rent that's going to be profitable. So you're probably right. right. It probably is a number of, you know, entry level price points that is being purchased by the the hedge funds and, and those should be the ones that do make their way back onto the market. And, and hopefully it is done in a somewhat organized fashion. So we don't see any kind of a, uh, a crash, but, but ideally if it happens, it's, it's, it's really the only way to imp- impact supply right now, considering that building homes is still very difficult right now. There's still a ton of supply chain issues in the construction world and how else can you increase supply? You know, exactly. And you know, the, the same is true in the apartment, the multifamily uh, sector, you know, apartments are booming everywhere. Uh, you see them going up everywhere. And I think that's in part because of the lack of supply for first time home buyers. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing from a philosophical perspective is, you know, uh, home ownership has been a, a core tenant of capitalism and people's uh, ability to build equity. And so when you have institutional investors that are taking out these first time home buyers, it kind of uh, limits people's ability to to build that equity. And that's really more of a, uh, a, a difficult situation akin to a socialist economy. We could talk about that for a full 30 minutes, couldn't we? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So 
but you know it's good we got a we got a good question for you and um so we got a question from john marks in philadelphia who wants to know what is principal curtailment in a mortgage document well principal curtailment in in, in in by definition is a reduction in the principal the amount of the principal owed on the loan um not to be confused with a, a recast where you know, if you if you have a, a chunk of money, let's say that came from the sale of a house, and you want to submit that or send that money into your mortgage company and have them re-amortize your payment, that's called a recast. Typically, principal curtailments are are come about when you let's say you do a, a rate and term refinance and your estimate was off and you end up walking away from the table with more money than you're allowed. They'll do a principal curtailment, they'll reduce the loan amount, will change your payment. Um, if you're doing a re-renovation loan. And, you know, you have your, your construction costs plus a contingency reserve and they don't use all that money up. Again, they'll do a principal curtailment and then they will um, reduce uh, the loan amount without changing your payment. And then the third reason you might see a principal curtailment is as a loss mitigation factor. Like, for instance, if if they um, if, if there was you were in financial trouble and you reached out to the mortgage company, they're able to put together some sort of a modification. Principal curtailment is one of the options that that they could use uh, to give you that loan modification, decrease what you owe, and potentially even re-amortize it in that case. Interesting stuff. I'm yeah. sure our viewers appreciate that because you know it's not something that we get into a whole lot. Thanks for that question. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to introduce our guest today, and that's Nick Yizzy of Cannon Capital. He's a CPA, former IRS agent, and since it's tax season, I'm sure he's got a lot of great advice for us. How are you doing, Nick? Hi, Doug. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, you know, last year, I guess for all of, of 2021, we heard about this whole Build Back Better plan and, you know, what that's going to do. And I know a lot of people made a lot of crazy tax changes thinking the estate tax was going to go nuts and, and get changed all over. What? Do we see that happening at all? Well, that's hard to predict, Doug. Uh, at this point, there are renegotiations starting to uh, assert themselves again. I know President Biden and uh, Joe Manchin have recently met. I think it would have been uh, two days ago. Uh, a lot of different things could happen. I mean, we don't know if this is just completely dead. We don't know if it's going to be broken up into smaller bits. Uh, whether I would think that maybe the name of the bill might be changed some rumors there. I would think we're going to have some legislation because there's surely needs for, for some of the things that are in the bill. And there's a lot of controversy between the two parties as to uh, whether it's, it's just a tax incentive type plan to change our system or whether it goes beyond that with a lot of environmental issues. So I think that's the gist of a lot of the controversy. Right. Uh, I would think it's going to get scaled down. Obviously, it started at $3.5 trillion. It got scaled down to $2.2 trillion. Joe Manchin, who was the Democrat uh, who sort of put the next to this whole thing, uh, wanted a $1.75 trillion. But he, he also wants to address the $30 trillion debt that we're looking at, which yeah. is a significant problem. So uh, we don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, surprisingly, they didn't change brackets a whole lot. Uh, the way it stood at its at its last presentation was that the top bracket was going to go from 37 percent to 39.6 percent. So that doesn't impact uh, most taxpayers in the country. Right. Uh, so that was a good thing. But they did 
They did uh, want to increase the long-term capital gain rate from a maximum of 20% to 25%. They wanted to expand the net investment income tax, which is right now is based on passive income. They wanted to include things like subchapter S earnings, which really could impact the viability of S corporations. Well, we even Um, had one senator who wanted to tax unrealized capital gains, which is just- Uh, Some crazy ideas like that. That would have been horrible. Thanks. Uh, I, I think that's a very accurate description of that. <laughs> so we, we don't know where it's going to end up. I would think, I mean, surely the administration wants to have something out there prior to the midterm elections. So what I would think we're going to have something, whether or not it's the same similar package to uh, what it right. was, but just scaled down with uh, revenue dollars. But uh, it remains to be seen. But I think we'll have something before, uh, okay. before it's all yeah. over this year. Quick question, Nick. Um, well, first of all, welcome. Um, Thank you, I can. You spent some time with the IRS, so you kind of have a good uh, understanding of the inner workings. What, With regard to the tax filings from 2020, I know there's a huge backlog. People are unable to get through. They're unable to get their, their returns filed. What Can you give us some insight as to what the, the what's going on with that? Yeah, it's really created a problem for a lot of people because not only just the taxpayers who may do their own returns, but also practitioners. They have about 8 million unprocessed paper returns primarily from 2020 that are still sitting there. Uh, There's 5 million pieces of correspondence. And when we try to uh, resolve issues, you get a notice from the IRS and you respond back. Uh, It sits there for months. I just had one where I sent a letter in November. I just got the letter the other day and it said they need 60 more days. Uh, I sent uh, certified mail that it will take three to four weeks before it's even presented for signature back. And there's there's a variety of business returns that are unfiled as well. There's amended returns that are unfiled into the millions. There's it, it, You're familiar with the employee retention credit. There's payroll tax returns, 941Xs to right. uh, claim this credit. There's 402,000 of those returns that are not processed yet. So uh, the, the IRS has admitted that this coming tax season could be uh, pretty difficult for everyone involved. I don't know if that will produce another extension like we've had for the past two years because of COVID-19, but I suspect that that could be the problem if the backlog continues the way it is. So the point there is to try to file electronically whenever possible and don't send any paper because they are backlogged to trying to detail people from other positions to be able to uh, catch up on this backlog that they have right now. They've just recently transferred 1,200 people from their regular position to to be able to assist. Obviously, they're trying to hire more people. That hasn't happened because, uh, particularly in the Build Back, Bud, Build Back Better plan, uh, they wanted 80,000 IRS employees, many of which would be auditors. They haven't done a whole lot of examinations for quite a few years. Uh, right. Not that I'm complaining about that. That's nice. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it's quite a mess. And to be honest with you, you have to give them a little bit of credit because they, they were they were assigned a lot of responsibility when it came to oh, yeah. all the COVID related things, the, the PPP loans, round one, round two, the uh, the and then they were all working remote credits, three of those. And then the advanced child tax credits last year, which is going to create another mess this year. So they've taken on a lot of work without without more uh, employees. A lot of employees have have retired. They haven't been replaced. 
And as you know, in the business world, it's hard to find employees right now. Oh, yeah. So they're experiencing the same dilemma that everybody else is out there. So it's not all their fault. I think they're doing the best that they can with the resources right. that they have. Nick, I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of sympathy for the IRS in our audience, but uh, but I guess no. you pretty much. I just try to give them a little bit of credit. But, yeah. you know, I, I can say other things, but I'll, I'll reserve that uh, <laughs> for myself. You know, hey, look, they're they're human beings are doing their job. And just like just like you and me, they just have a different role. That's right. Although, you know, from a from a fact perspective, I mean, I spoke to a client last week who said that uh, the, the IRS couldn't deal with their return because it was in a tractor trailer in Ogden, Utah. So they've right. got all these paper returns that are sitting in tractor trailers and they can't process them yet. Correct. And uh, so, you know, it sort of makes it tough to, for them to sort of work through. And it's at the same time, you've got the, the big computer at the IRS that just loves to spit out notices. What do you do if you're a taxpayer and, and you're, you're getting noticed out the wazoo? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of these things are time sensitive. And if you don't respond within 60, 30, 60 or 90 days, you know, you're uh, subject to some significant penalties. Yeah. I mean, the, the notices kept rolling. And I had that specific situation with a person who had a, uh, a 30 day, 60 day rollover from an IRA. Uh, he replaced the money in 30 days. They ended up sending him a notice for 86,000, sent a letter. Obviously, the letter sat somewhere for a couple months. And then he gets a final notice of intention to levy. And he's a licensed individual, which creates a problem. So uh, uh, we had to intervene as best we could. Uh, obviously, taxpayers have a different uh, resource to go to. We have a taxpayer advocate that we can contact. So I'm able to put a hold on that. But for the regular taxpayer, that's really difficult because you call and you can't get through and you get these courtesy hangups because the lines are so backed up. And in that case, I, I, I think you need to, to hire a professional to be able to handle it for you because you're not going to be able to get into the right people to be able to at least put a hold until all the correspondence issues have been resolved. Uh, there is something on, on the individual end you can do, and that's called a, you can contact the taxpayer advocate and there's a form 911, which is like an emergency form for someone who who could be severely hurt by uh, any of the intentions of the IRS. Right. But I think you're better served just dealing with a professional who, do who does it all the time because uh, the ball keeps rolling. And unfortunately, when when they want something, you have to respond immediately. And and when uh, it's just the opposite, when uh, you, you want something from them in the form of correspondence that you've sent and you don't get an answer because it is sitting in a tractor trailer. So the best thing is to be able to just contact a professional or Another alternative is if you sent numerous pieces of correspondence, you could always contact your congressman. And that's called a congressional inquiry. And when you do that, IRS has to respond to that congressman in a limited number of days. But oftentimes that won't produce an answer. It'll just put a hold on uh, what your accountant may do if you had an accountant. Right. So, uh, that, that's the, the best advice I could give at this so point. It, kind of, it kind of stops the clock from ticking, right? Yeah. Now they did come out recently and they said they're going, they, they are, they've canceled some automatic notices like that intention to levy notice a CP 504. That right. one's been canceled right now until they address the backlog. And there's some, been some other ones as well. So uh, Congress has gotten on them as well for uh, this tremendous backlog because they're getting all these congressional letters from people that can't get it resolved. 
Oh, I'm sure. So, so they're getting their offices filled with all these uh, uh, phone calls and letters. So uh, it just continues to just dribble down and then eventually it goes back up to the uh, to the IRS commissioner. So, so what's someone to do then, Nick? I mean, if they, if they make a, a legitimate error or mistake, you know, and all of a sudden they're getting hit with these penalties, um, you know, what recourse do they have to, to go back and, and address that? Yeah, if you make an innocent mistake and if you had good compliance history, there's something called a first-time abate procedure. And they can remove penalties for failure to file, failure to pay, failure to deposit payroll taxes. Uh, that would be uh, uh, some of the, the basic tenants of where you can qualify for first time abate. As long as you didn't have the issue or the lateness uh, in prior years, then it's almost an automatic procedure. Otherwise you have to file uh, an appeal usually to determine whether you're uh, eligible for uh, removal of penalties for not being negligent, not purposely disregarding the rules and regulations, but that's a little bit harder to do. And if you're doing it on your own, it makes it more difficult. But this first time abate procedure, if someone has a problem with a penalty, uh, then look up first time abate. There's an internal revenue manual uh, text that you could use, and it's almost it is almost automatic as long as you have good compliance history. So the IRS and, actually gives mulligans. Yes, they do. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> God, who who'd have thought that? Yeah, they. Uh, sometimes I, it depends on who you get on the other line too. Yeah. So when you call, you have to be nice. You don't want to agitate the yeah. person on the other right. line. Hey, as, as my grandmother always said, you can get more bees with a spoonful of honey than you can with a cup of vinegar. That's right. Now, you, you mentioned previously how the IRS has been burdened with all these, you know, stimulus credits, tax credits for child, child tax credits. Um, how is that playing out? Because a lot of people don't know that, you know, some of these things are refundable. Some of them are really just an advanced refund of, you know, yep. their, their uh, tax payments and it's going to be uh, adjusted on their tax return. Can you address the, that? There's two letters that IRS issued recently. The 6419 addresses and the child tax credit. So if you received advanced payments, which started last July, and so that was an advance payment on your, your 21 tax return. The problem is people got this money. It, it wasn't very well communicated that that was an advance. So people are going to file their tax returns this year. And if they receive those six advances on their child tax credit, and that credit's $3,000 for a child ages six to 17, it's $3,600 for someone under six. Uh, they're going to be a little bit shocked when they realize they're not going to get that credit because they've already gotten half of it. So that's not going right. to be the credit they expected. So they got the IRS sent out letter 6419 to tell you what advanced payments you received. And then with respect to the recovery rebates, they also sent out letter 6475. And that was the third round of rebates that started in March of 2021. That will that letter will tell you what the rebates were that you received. That would have been $1,400 for each taxpayer in the family. Uh, some of those notices aren't 100% accurate. IRS says that most of them are, but that's a letter that you should supply to your accountant so that he can reconcile. Those things have to be reconciled in your 21 return to make sure that if you were overpaid, you have to pay it back. And if you were underpaid based upon your current income qualifications, and then you might be due a credit on your 21 return. 
Okay. So that, that's another thing that, that, that the IRS has to deal with. And uh, yeah. obviously, if you don't put the correct numbers on the return, now it creates correspondence. And then the correspondence, theoretically, can sit in a trailer again. Exactly. So you get that return correct the first time and not have to go through this because seriously, on a lot of these notices, accountants can't even charge back all the time they put into it because yeah. that time may be more than they put into doing the return. So it's, it's been uh, quite a mess. The other off. problem with this, with these rebate things is when they first came out, they were issuing, some people were getting direct deposits, some were getting checks and some were getting debit cards. They weren't clearly marked. So people thought they were like solicitations from credit card companies. They threw them away. So we, we do the return and they said, well, uh, no, I didn't get I didn't get a rebate. And then IRS says, yes, you did. So the return changes and it creates correspondence. So that created another mess. Wow. Uh, as well last year, and I expect the same thing will happen for the coming tax year. So make time to do it right or make time to do it twice, right? Correct. Correct. So hey, let's shift gears now to saving money, right? See, favorite thing of uh, of, of uh, taxpayers when they hire a, a CPA is how can I save money? And, you know, my question is when, when a borrower, when it went, excuse me, when a, when a person reaches 72 years old and they're required to do their, you know, required minimum distributions, what are ways they can save on taxes? I think one of the best ways, Ken, is to, if they're charitably inclined, is, is to do what's called a qualified charitable distribution. Because obviously, you know that when you reach age 72, you have to, used to be 70 and a half, now it's 72. You have to take out your required minimum distribution based upon your, uh, the actual mortality tables. Uh, so if they're charitably inclined, what they, what they should do is have the money transferred directly from the IRA into the charity and that won't be taxable. And, and that has a couple other beneficial effects. Since that transfer goes directly from your IRA to charity, it doesn't increase your adjusted gross income. And for a retired person, that, that has a couple different effects. It may help you with the amount of medical expenses you're able to deduct because that's a function of adjusted gross income. You're limited to deducting 7.5% or the excess of 7.5% for medical expenses. So your, your AGI will be lower, therefore your medical expense would be higher. But something else that, that people get hit by is that you're, it's called IRMA. People who are age 65 and over who are on Medicare, uh, their Part B supplement ranges from $170 a month to $578 a month, depending on what their, their adjusted gross income was two years prior. So I, I get people frequently who say, hey, my, my uh, my premiums for my Part B Medicare have increased dramatically, and that's because they're now taking out distributions from their RMD that they weren't expecting that would increase their what's called the income-related monthly adjusted amount, the IRMAA. But it's basically a function of your adjusted gross income. So uh, if you're given the charity, take the money out of your, your IRA first uh, to the extent that you can. You're allowed to do up to $100,000 a year per taxpayer. But uh, even if it's lower amounts than that, it could be 10 or 20. Uh, take it out of there and it'll give you a couple of different benefits that maybe you weren't expecting. Very cool. Great stuff. Yeah, it's probably good for people to work with their CPA and their financial advisor to sort of fine tune that to make sure that, you know, they they get enough to get themselves under the limits and uh, in for the next bracket. And of course, under under that next threshold for uh, Irma, because, you know, if you're if you're one dollar over that, your premiums go up significantly. It's not like it's phased in. Yeah, it, it really impacts uh, the cost of medical care. Yeah. 
Some yeah. people think that CPA stands for cleaning, pressing, and alterations, and I think that's a. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff good stuff well the final thing that i was going to ask is you know i know we talk a little bit about with clients about doing backdoor roth iras and i for for a while there i know they were uh the, the obama administration wanted to to curtail that it sounds like they've approved that and the irs is not challenging it anymore yeah, a backdoor IRA, it's, it's an interesting concept because it's not really uh, codified in the Internal Revenue Code, but right. it's allowed by the IRS. And basically what it is, is uh, if your adjusted gross income is too high to allow an IRA contribution, what you can do, and you know, for, for an IRA contribution, uh, your income can't, your AGI can't exceed right. $20,000 for a married file joint return. And that's so fine, Nick. Do, I hate, I hate to do this. We got to wrap up. Okay. But uh, the fact is you're allowed to do backdoor Roth IRAs. Backdoor Roth IRAs, but there are some pitfalls. If you have traditional balances, you need to make sure because that backdoor Roth IRA technique could backfire if yep. you have other balances in your pre-tax traditional IRAs. Exactly. Good stuff. Ken, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a great show. Our next guest next week is going to be Bill Morrison, MD, FACR, the Musculoskeletal Imaging at TJ Hospital. And again, thanks for joining us at, at Money Matters TV, where your money matters.